greetings this, this morning. I'm Dave Lewis, in case you don't know who I am. Um, I was ordained by the elders of Abiding Grace, can you guys believe this, in 2014. Wow. This May will be seven years, which it's, it seems crazy to me. Um, and my wife and I, with our four adopted kids, we live in New Kensington. We attend a church there. And my full-time job is I'm the director of Adult and Teen Challenge which is a ministry dedicated to helping those with drug and alcohol addiction uh, through the gospel uh, be set free from that. It's just a little introduction. Um, We stand, and this is on my mind as a way of introduction, we stand today in the birthplace of R.C. Sproul. I don't know if anyone knew that. I I recommend his biography by Stephen Nichols that just came out. Um, And actually, fun fact, he was the first person born in Pleasant Hills after it was changed to the name Pleasant Hills. Because this used to have some number of like a mining area. So those of you on Sermon Audio, there's no one else who's preaching from the birthplace of R.C. Sproul this Sunday. <laughs> Maybe there is, but, uh, you know, in case we, got, we can brag about that. Um, so the title of this sermon is a, a rev- overview of Romans 1 to 5. So, you know, so Pastor Mike, when I texted him and asked him if I could do that, you know, he... he he first said, well, don't repeat anything I've already said, as if, so, as if someone could repeat what the inimitable Mike Milano says in a sermon and capture it. That's not, it's impossible. Okay. Uh, but I can't promise that I won't repeat something that was said last Sunday because someone didn't <coughs> upload the audio yet. So I couldn't listen to the sermon. Anyway, so, <laughs> but... So, so what I want to accomplish in this sermon is two things, okay? I want to review where we, where, you know, I've listened to all the sermons, except that one that hasn't been uploaded yet, um, where, what's been preached to prepare for the next section of Romans, starting with chapter 6, okay? And to just hit some application points along the way of the first five chapters, okay? So hopefully I can accomplish that. So, of course, and Mike said this, that this is one of the most, if not the most important letter in the New Testament, because, and there's a reason why it comes first in the order of the canon. There's a reason why the early church put it in every, every collection of Paul's letters we found, no matter how old Romans is first, because this set up, sets up the categories by which you understand all the rest of the letters of Paul. So you could, if you read Galatians, for example, or Corinthians, Paul will say things that you'll have no idea what he's talking about if you don't have the context of Romans to know what he's talking about. So the first part of Romans, Romans 1, 1 to 15, is a long introduction. And the only point I want to make about that is the context by which Paul is writing is in the Roman Empire. And you've got to understand the implication of Paul writing a letter to the capital city of the most powerful empire that had ever been known to man up to that point with the following statement in it. Jesus is Lord. The minute that that would have been read or said out loud in a church building, in a church, someone's house, or someone in the public square, the minute a Roman soldier or a Roman official would have heard, what, what? What? Jesus Christos, Kurios, Jesus Christ is Lord. They would have said, wait a minute, do we have, what are the political implications of that group? It's meeting, declaring that Jesus is Lord. Because what did that mean? Caesar is not. And we are at a point in our country, 
politically, where we must decide if Jesus is Lord and what does that mean for our engagement as Christians in this culture. Okay? And that, I'll just say this, let the bomb explode, you can talk to me afterwards, okay? But that does not mean that only the liberal leftist Democrats have a problem with the Jesus is Lord confession. It does not only mean that. If you are Republican and conservative like I am, be careful not to assume that just because you have the moral high ground in moral issues in our culture that you are consistently saying Jesus is Lord with your life. That's all I got to say. It's a big problem with right-wing conservatives. Well, we, we're against gay marriage, and we're against this, and we're against that. They, that makes us right in everything else we do. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Okay, then when Paul, I'll read this part. This is the thesis statement of the letter to the Romans. Romans 1, 16 and 17. So we want to turn there. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. As you're studying the book of Romans, these are the categories that you need to fully, completely understand if you're going to say, I understand the book of Romans. What is the gospel? What is salvation? What does it mean that it's God's power for salvation? What is faith? And what is the righteousness of God? And how is that received by faith? That's the whole point of this letter, is to expound. And then the Jew-Greek thing is in there too. That's very important for Paul. Now, once he gets the thesis, chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, what is the point of that section? The point of that section is to say, all have sinned, all will face God's judgment, all are under his wrath. Okay? Now, how does Paul set them up? In Romans 1.18 to, to 1.30, 2. He picks on the Gentiles, the pagans. And he uses a pronoun throughout the text by saying the, they, them, third person plural, these people, those people, the, these people. Okay? Now this is, this is a secret little fantasy of mine that I probably will never do in my life. But if I do, I'll never be invited back to the church I preach it at again. It would be like if I walked in here and I got everyone like, and I, I, I was serious, like, you know what, guys? These Democrats and these pro-abortion, these homosexuals and these wicked people in our society, aren't they so wicked? And I got everyone all ginned up in here. and they're, Amen. Amen. This is the sermon I've been waiting to hear from Abiding Grace. How wicked this culture is around us. They're so disgusting. And you're all hollering and screaming. And yes. And then I stopped mid-sentence and I said, who are you? You're no different. You got to understand now, there's a theological exegesis we could do of Romans 1, 18 to 32 and break it down, which you should do. But there's a rhetorical thing that people miss that Paul's doing. Because what Paul does in Romans 1, 18 to 32, there's no Jew alive during Paul's day that would reject anything Paul said in Romans 1, 18 to 32. Nothing. They would have said, amen, 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 Paul, this is, this is a great sermon. Until he gets to chapter 2, verse 1. And what does he do? So he, let, let, let's get a little taste. He says... Uh, verse 28, and since they did not see fit, listen to the pronouns, 
God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malicious. They, they, they are this. They are foolish, faithless. Yes, Paul, amen, amen. And then in Romans 2, 1, what does he do? Therefore, you have no excuse. O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So Paul flips the table on him and goes, you're no better. You do the same thing. Now, how easy is that message to take on board? When Paul just said, notice, he didn't say, well, you commit different sins than them. And you're just, no, he says, you practice the very same things that you're condemning them of. (laughs) I mean, we're okay with saying, you know, we all sin, but I'm not as bad as that sinner. Right? That's what we do. That's what we do. That's human nature. Instead of comparing ourselves to God's law and that standard, right? What do we compare ourselves to? Another human being. And trust me, our culture Our media, our church culture is all designed to make you feel better because you'll always have someone more wicked to compare yourself to. You know, just 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 sit down one day during a weekday. If you don't if you I mean, if you don't work, if you if you work during this time, you don't get to catch this stuff. But if you're sitting at home, 130 around 130. Right. That's when the soaps come on. Just watch from 130 till Judge Judy. All you got to do is watch that three or four hours of TV and it's geared toward one audience and one audience only. Those who are sitting at home and could say, I am better than those people that I see portrayed on television. Like the soap opera. It's all about like, yeah, your life, is your life like that? Is there someone that you put in a coma and you secretly or know that? And then there's this other person who, you know, you're having an affair with. You know, is that your life? I hope not. You should be under church discipline if it is. Okay? <laughs> That's not you. But, that, but you'll sit in a chair and go, oh, look at how scandalous and wicked. I'm not that bad. Okay? And then I don't even know if Jerry Springer's still on. Jerry Springer. But, you know, you watch Jerry Springer and Maury. Oh, Maury's the best. Marching this woman up who's pregnant. And she's slept with five guys. Hasn't figured out who the father is. Here's another fraternity test. Oh, well, he's not the father. Uh, and all you, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the woman who's been faithful to her husband she got married when she was a virgin she sits home and cradles their newborn and she lives in her suburban home she can say look at that whore look at how wicked she is i'm not like her this is what paul's coming against and it's not only picking on the jews it's human nature we always want to say that there's someone else more wicked than we are but i have news for you when you stand before a holy god on the day of judgment you will not have another human being that you can say god what about him By the way, does that even work in a human court of law? Do you know what would happen if you were charged with a serious crime and when you stood before the judge to make your plea or the preliminary hearing, you said, Your Honor, I just have something to say to the court. At least I'm not as bad as and fill in the blank. You think the judge will go, yeah, that's a great argument. Let's just throw this case right out. No, the judge would actually be like, "Uh, you don't get bail now because you're mentally ill. Okay, You should be standing in front of me as the judge going, I have broken a law and I see that I deserve punishment for it. Okay. So that's what Paul's doing. So then Paul says, you practice the same things. Okay. 
And then he goes on to say, possession of the law does not make a difference. Okay? Just because you possess the law. Because the Jews, what would they have said that makes them superior to the Gentiles? They have the Bible. So, yeah, us Christians, you know. Well, not anymore, right? See, this is impressive. Church I go to, everyone's Bible's on their phone now. And well, they even bring the Bible. And there's a PowerPoint presentation that puts the scripture up, so you don't even need to look at it. But we're carrying our Bibles around, right? Does that make us righteous? No. It doesn't make you righteous. What makes you righteous for Paul? Obeying the commands. Obeying the law. That's what makes you righteous. It's not possession. It's the accomplishing of it. Okay? And then the Jews had something else they wanted to bring forward as their badge of being God's people. Circumcision. And that's just, a, that's just a stand-in for all the outward things. Circumcision was just the main one, but the temple and the worship service and all this outward stuff, that's what shows everyone that we are God's people. And Paul says something that would have really angered the Jews. He said in um, cha- the end of chapter 2, he says, He who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Paul just said to them, listen, a Gentile who doesn't have any of the outward things, will condemn you who are lawbreakers, okay? Don't tell me we as Christians don't do this all the time, okay? If you get some guy that pulls into the church parking lot this morning, he's all goth looking, he's got like all these stickers on his car and like all this crazy stuff, he's got his outfit on and like, but, and you're gonna be like, that dude's definitely not a Christian. Like, look at how he dresses. Look at him, look at uh, him. How, how is it possible? And I'm going to tell you, on the day of judgment, you will go, that dude, it was saved, and that pastor is being ushered into hell? Yes. Yes. Remember Jesus said it in Matthew. Didn't he say it? Yeah, I have it here. Matthew seven twenty one. What did Jesus say? He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not, three things, prophesy in your name, cast out many demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And he will say to them, what? Depart from me, I never knew you. Now, if I transition my sermon right now into a signs and wonders conference at Abiding Grace Church, wouldn't that be something cool? Okay. (laughs) And I start going around and I name your name and I say this personal stuff about you. Thus says the Lord, you, you, this, this. And you're like, dude, how does this dude have this knowledge? Like, what's going on? And then, you know, someone, one of you in here has been having some some issues, some serious struggles. I say, I speak to the demon that's inside of you. And I say, come out! And you, the person falls on the ground. And then for the next three months, they're like cured now. Okay? And then I, I, I do like a miracle. I raise someone from the dead. Wouldn't you assume that I'm saved? I mean, most people would be like, dude, that Dave Lewis, man. Jeez, he should go on a worldwide crusade and ask for money. I mean, the dude's legit. And Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. Because I don't care how many signs and wonders the person does. If they're not proclaiming the gospel that Paul proclaims in this book of Romans, they're a false prophet. Because you may ask the question, so Dave, how do you know who's telling the truth and who's a liar? It's the message they bring. Not the signs and the wonders. And certainly not outward morality. This is hard for us Christians because that's the safest way to determine who's a Christian. Oh, well, this person lives a morally decent life. They're certainly right with God. And Paul would reject that. No. Is that a fruit of someone being right with God? Yes. But is that the main evidence? No, it's not. The main evidence is repentance 
and faith. Okay? Now, in Romans 3, this, Paul deals with this objection. The first part of Romans 3. The Jew shoots back at Paul. Okay, Paul, so if we can't keep the law and circumcision and outward stuff like going to church on Sunday, praying, reading your Bible, dressing nice for church, if all that has nothing to do with my salvation, then what's the point of it? That's basically, I mean, it's deeper than that, but like at a surface level, that's what the Jews are doing to Paul. And people do this to the gospel all the time. So if you're telling me that I'm not saved by works, then I might as well just go live it up. Okay? And Paul introduces that concept here, but I want it, and, and then he fills it in more in Romans 6, which I'm sure Pastor Mike's going to cover when Paul, toward the end of Romans 6, in Romans 6, he, he deals with the objection head on. Should we just continue in sin so grace may increase, since we're not under the law, but under grace? But I just want to say something. The ought equals can fallacy is one of the, what you have, as a Christian, you have to understand that this idea that when the Bible says you ought to do something, that means you must be able to do it, is one of the most common misunderstandings that people have of the Bible. So when the Bible says you ought to keep God's law, that doesn't mean you're able to keep it. What's it doing? It's showing you you can't keep it. And that's the next part, Romans 3, 10 to 18. God's indictment against humanity, where it says no one is righteous. No, not one. And I love how it says it that way, right? Because you could say no one is righteous, and then someone could be like, well, no, I know this one guy. <laughs> no, not one. There's not one. You don't know that one guy. There's not one guy who's righteous. No one's righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. This is the indictment that will be read on the day of judgment. I don't care how outwardly righteous you appear. Inwardly, your flesh has the seed of all this wickedness inside of it. Okay, all of it. And the venom of ashes under their lips. Their mouth is full of bitterness. So then this is the law court imagery. That charge of indictment is read against you. What's your plea? What's your plea? Are you innocent or guilty? Because that's all that matters. Are you innocent or guilty of the charges? That's how a court case goes, right? How do you plead? Now, if you plea innocent, guess what you're going to have to do in the trial then? You're going to have to, well, you know, in a human court of law, the state has to prove your guilt. That's the problem. The state, do, do they have omniscience? Do they, can they see into your heart? No, they have to cobble together evidence and prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. But there's always reasonable doubt there. There's no reasonable doubt with God. He sees right into your heart. He sees every thought you've ever had. He knows everything you've ever done. And that evidence will be marshaled forth by Moses, the prosecutor on the day of judgment. You will face his judge, the judge of God's prosecutor is Moses, and he will come forward. And what are you going to say? And that's the purpose of the law, 319 and 20, very important text. Okay, watch my time. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Very important. Your average person in the United States of America, if you ask them what is the purpose of God's law, they're usually going to say it tells you how to be a good person. Now, is that a correct answer? Yes. Absolutely it is. God's law is the standard by which we should measure our lives to live as someone who is a Christian who is walking with God. 
But that is not the most, this is my opinion, I don't think that's the most important function of God's law. I think the most important function of God's law is this one. To shut our mouths, hold us accountable, and, and give us knowledge of our sin. That's the three things Paul just said in that text. So the law of God comes forward to say, you are a sinner. You have no excuse, like running your mouth in front of the judge. That's why people pay lawyers, right? The lawyer runs his mouth for you. And you just keep your mouth shut. The lawyer, But the lawyer can't even say anything. It's straight guilt. And by the way, in a trial, if you just plead guilty, do you get to defend yourself at all? No, it just goes right to the sentencing phase. Right to the sentencing phase. And that's what Paul's, the picture he's painting in the law court. The law has condemned you. It has shown you your sin. How do you plead? If you plead innocent, Paul's very clear, you will be condemned. He already got done saying that. You're going to be condemned. You can say you're innocent all you want. You're not. You've broken God's law. So you're going to, there's going to be a day of judgment coming up. And that judgment is by works. So if you want to, if you want to face God and pass his judgment by works, here's all you have to do. From the day you're born to the day you die, perfectly obey his law and never sin once. Everybody good? You can just leave church right now and live a, your conscience is clear, right? You can just sit at home now and be like, yeah, I'm going to heaven. I'm perfect. Okay, no, you can't do that. But see how many preachers actually elevate the law to that level. You know, many preachers just go, oh, we've all made mistakes. We've all messed up. No one in here is a mass shooter or a terrorist, so we don't got to go that far. I know you've all told a little white lie and you've all done this and that. No, we are all... In seed form, I agree, not everyone commits the same actual outward sins as everybody else. But inwardly, you have the potential to commit any sin you see another human being commit. You do. Potentially, you do. Don't think you're born somehow superior or better to someone you see on the news that does some crazy, outward, immoral, disgusting thing, which we should call those things out. Don't get me wrong. But don't sit here and judge them and say, well, I'm better than them because I haven't done that. And God will certainly recognize that I deserve heaven and they don't because I haven't done that particular sin. That will not help you. And if that is your hope of heaven, I'm here to disabuse you of it right now. You will stand before God and unless you can produce perfect righteousness, you will be condemned. And the weight of that, that's, what Paul, that's the picture Paul's painting to get to verse 21. He wants the person to go, if this is the case, if there's no hope for me in law keeping, and there's no hope for me in any kind of outward ritualistic, going to a temple, getting circumcised, going to church, doing a, getting baptized, whatever it is, then what am I supposed to do? Well, first of all, <laughs> you're, you're, the law has got to get you to stop even saying that stuff. You're just like, oh, no, it's true. It's true. I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. I'm condemned. And once your mouth is shut, then the two most glorious words, as I think it's Martin Lloyd-Jones, who has like a 10-volume commentary on Romans. But now, the two most glorious words in the Bible, according to him. Because this but says, here's the situation. It's kind of like, I've painted this super black backdrop for you. But now I'm going to pull a diamond out of my pocket and set it in front of that black backdrop so that diamond shines even more. Isn't that what jewelers do in a jewelry case? They put the 
diamonds in front of black velvet. Why do they do that? Because it brings out the luster of the diamond. The gospel shines forth with the backdrop of God is holy and he is going to judge sinners and we are sinners and we deserve that hell. And it's a black, ter- I mean, and, and just looking at the, the, the universe and looking at the earth we live on, everything in this earth screams out to us. If there's one universal message that every human being instinctively knows, it's the universe is doing the bidding of the creator who is, has wrath. Why does coronavirus even exist? Because of the fall of Adam. If, if, if Christians don't have a reason to go, hey, because everyone's talking about coronavirus. I mean, and you'll be the weirdest dude in the conversation. Like, yeah, coronavirus isn't crazy. The Johnson and Johnson thing and all. And everyone's talking about the vaccine. Everyone's talking about this and the mask and all this. And you just say, hey, I got something to say. Do you know coronavirus is because of God's judgment on Adam's sin? <laughs> Try that by the uh, water cooler at work. <laughs> But you're speaking biblical truth. The biblical truth that no one wants to admit. The reason why we die, the reason why there's floods, the reason why there's natural disasters, the reason why there's cancer, the reason why there is all this sickness and death and destruction in our world is because of why biblically? Because of Adam's sin. The federal headship of Adam, which I'm going to close on that point. Okay, got to check my time. All right. What is the good news? What we just said was, let me summarize it again. Unless you present perfect righteousness to God, you cannot be accepted by God because he is perfect. And that should, if you hear that message straight up, that should make you despair. You should go, well, if that is the standard, and by the way, a five-year-old can understand this. If you say to a five-year-old, you know, in order to go to heaven, you have to be perfect, little boy, they'll despair. Unless you sit there and tell your child they're a perfect little angel, please stop doing that. You're not preparing them for life. Okay? So I guess there's the little kid like, I know my mommy says I'm a perfect little angel, so that doesn't apply to me. You're not preparing your child for the gospel, okay? But in general, okay, most children instinctively understand, well, no, I can't be perfect. My daddy just punished me for lying. My mom just punished, you know what I mean? Like I, I do bad things and they call me out on it. So therefore I'm not perfect. Okay, well, then guess what? You're not going to heaven. That should make it. That's crazy. Well, what the whole, what's the whole point? Here's the whole point. The whole point is to prepare you for the fact that if there isn't a way for you to produce righteousness that is acceptable to God because you're a sinner, then there must be another way. And what does Paul say? But now the righteousness of that you produce by your cooperation with God? No, the righteousness of God. So there's a right, there's two kinds of righteousness, as Luther said. There's a righteousness that you can try to produce by your cooperation with God, or there's a righteousness that God produces on his own. Completely on his own, without our aid, without our help. And where does he do that? It has been manifested apart from law. This is the good news. So there's a perfect righteousness that God will accept, that exists completely separate from our law keeping. It has nothing to do with it. It's not even connected to our law keeping. What is it? It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's a righteousness that God has that he manifested where? In the incarnation and the perfect life of the Son of God. 
And in his sacrificial death and his resurrection and his ascension and his intercession, all those parts of Christ's incarnation have to do with this one reality. He presents a perfect righteousness to God in our place. Everything about Christianity when it comes to Christ is substitutionary when you're talking about this doctrine. How am I right with God? Because Christ did something in my place. And what did he do in my place? And this is where, he, this is where Paul from 321, and he just goes all the way to where we're going to go. It's all about justification. Now, you know what justification is? It is the verb form of righteousness. So, it, it, and it doesn't come out this way in English, but like in German it does. And in Greek it definitely does. It's a verb form. So if I wanted to put it in English literally, what God does in justification is he righteousness you with an ED on the end. That's not an English word. We say justified. But that is in German. There's like the German word means that directly. You're righteous. In other words, you are not righteous by nature. You are sinful. But there is a righteousness that's presented to you. Okay. Oh, I left my wallet in my car. I was going to use it. The difference between a debit card and a credit card. Okay? This is very important because it, it distinguishes us from the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? This word that is used by Paul, and I'm kind of jumping ahead in my notes here, but it's in Romans. Logizomai. It's, it's, it's either translated to reckon, to count, right? To impute, to credit. This is very important. The righteousness that Paul is teaching that you have that makes you right before a holy God. It's the difference between a debited righteousness and a credited righteousness. So in my wallet, I have two types of cards. I have a debit card and a credit card. If I pull my debit card out, what is that? What does the money on that card represent? That represents money that actually belongs to me personally. It's my money. Okay. What's a credit card? A credit card, the money belongs actually to a bank. That's not my money. When I swipe a credit card, I'm not directly spending my money, am I? The bank is letting me use their money that's in their account to make that purchase, and then I have to pay it back. Now, here's where the analogy breaks down. Unless you want to say we paid Christ back for what he did for us by our works in terms of glorifying him, but I don't have to pay Christ back for what he did. It's a free gift. But... The point of the analogy is what? That the righteousness that I have is a credited or reckoned righteousness. The only reason I stand before a holy God righteous today is because not some internal change. This is very important. It's not an internal change that makes you right with God. That's what Rome teaches. That the sacrament of baptism actually makes you righteous. And in Roman Catholic theology, historically taught... If you die the moment after you're baptized, you'll go straight to heaven because you have perfect infused debited righteousness. But of course, the Roman Catholics know that Christians still sin, right? So that's why their system of salvation says, well, you, we agree with them that you have to be perfect to go to heaven. They would just say that perfection exists as you participate in the sacramental system when you sin you confess your sin to the priest, you receive the sacrament, and you keep that righteousness as they say in their baptism liturgy. Here is the robe of Christ's righteousness. Keep it pure until the day of judgment. And that, but is there hope in that system at the end of the day? No, because you can approach the sacrament 10,000 times in your life and still not be assured that you're right with God. 
Because a mortal sin could blow it all. You commit a certain sin, you've lost all the grace of God, and now you're going to suffer his judgment and his vengeance. That is not what Paul teaches. And that was the great insight of Luther, who struggled under that system and came to this realization and said, no, the righteousness that God demands from us is not something he demands that we produce in cooperation with the sacraments. No, the righteousness that he demands is a gift that Christ possesses, and he gives it to us as we open our empty hand of faith. And we receive that perfectly worked out righteousness that Christ gives us. And then we have Abraham. Okay, So Abraham in chapter 4, why does Paul bring up Abraham? Because for Paul, Abraham undercuts fully and completely the Jewish objection that says, we are righteous because we are circumcised and we possess the law. Because Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, which is one of Paul's favorite verses, what does that verse say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was logizomai, reckoned to him, credited to him as righteousness. So Paul is seeing that word there too, like that word's very important. But even on top of that, was Abraham circumcised when Genesis 15, 6 happened? No. Was the law given when Genesis 15, 6 happened? No, that's 400 years later, right? That Paul says in Galatians. So Abraham is credited as righteous because he believed God before the existence of the things that the Jews would say make you righteous. Boom, case closed. But interesting, right? I didn't bring my Bible with the Apocrypha in it. There's a book in there called, it's the, it's the book that, you know, there's extra books in the Catholic Bible. There's, a, there's one called Sirach or Ecclesiasticus. There's actually a text in there that the rabbis used to say, we, and the rabbis taught this too. They said Abraham supernaturally received the law before Sinai. So the Jews would actually say to Paul, no, no, no. The rabbis teach that Abraham had the law. And, and Paul says, no, he didn't. He did not have the law. Hey, you, oh, the law was written on his heart, but that's not Paul's point. He did not have the Mosaic covenant. Hey, he did not have that covenant. He was, say, the Abrahamic covenant is what? That is the, God, that is the gospel. That's what Paul's preaching. Look, Abraham was standing in the gospel. The, this is, gets all complicated, the covenants, and we disagree with the Presbyterians on the nature of the covenants and stuff like that. But bottom line is, Abraham is not standing under a covenant of works. Jesus stood under the covenant of works and Adam stood under the covenant of works. Guess what? Adam broke the covenant of works. Jesus fulfilled it. Okay, now, why circumcision? So Paul does in Romans 4. Why, then what's the point of circumcision, right? So Paul, if you're saying that this sign and seal called circumcision didn't do anything to save Abraham, then what's the point of it? And Paul says there's a very important point. These outward seals are not a cause of Abraham's salvation, but they are a sign and seal pointing to the reality. So that's why the Lord's Supper is so important. We, we, we celebrate that because it points us to the reality. No one's sitting in here saying, oh, because I take this piece of bread and drink this little cup, that makes me saved. Because. No, it's not because. It's 
This is reminding me of the eternal reality of Christ's ascension, his death, his resurrection, his ascension in my place. And I'm thanking him for it. And because I'm weak in faith, this is what Luther would say about the sacraments, because you're weak in faith, you need something tangible that you can touch with your nerve endings on your fingers and chew chew with your teeth and, and taste with your mouth that's pointing you to Christ and saying this is reminding me of Christ and who he is. Then Romans 5. Romans 5 is a hinge point in the book of Romans. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's what Paul just got done saying. Chapter 1 to 4, he just summarized chapter 1 to 4 in one sentence. Guess what? You're justified by faith. You have peace with God. And how many people need peace with God? How many people are trying to get peace about their identity as a human being through their works? And you can, just, you can pull it back out of the religious realm and just into the relationships within families and relationships, like your, your position at your job and you know, all this stuff. Like my identity and my feeling good, my having peace in life has to do with my performance. It's all about my performance and how I perform for this person, how I do that, and how, how much money I have, and how big my house is, and how, how, and how everyone looks at me. Oh, he's successful. He's unsuccessful. Put that down and replace it with something that will give you eternal peace. I don't care what you think about me. I don't care how I'm performing. I am right with God because of someone else's performance, namely Jesus. Okay? His righteousness. His, that gives me security of my person. But I'm telling you, we're in a society where people are just churning, churning, churning. I mean, and social media has made it worse. Everyone's a public figure now because of social media. Like everybody. All you got to do is open up my TikTok and make a little video. And then I'm telling you, people are going to, you want to go into private counseling? This is the only thing you have to do to have a very successful, highly in-demand counseling practice. Maybe give it another year or two, but it's coming. All you're doing is treating people for the anxiety and depression that emerges when someone's not liking and sharing your TikTok video. That's all you got to do. Because there's kids that just have their phone up. Did I get any likes yet? Did I get any follow? Like my, my children think they're going to be, they call it TikTok famous, YouTube famous. They actually believe that if they can get the right person to see them either play on Twitch, which is the video game thing, or do a TikTok video and get enough views, they'll make money off of that. Drives me completely insane. Like, yeah, I'm going to be TikTok famous. Something. Oh, really? And then when that fails, right? Then, here's the other thing. <laughs> any, any, anyone, it, you don't have to raise your hand. Just nod. Do you watch The Office? Anyone watch The Office? But there's this episode of The Office. Oh, yeah, here we go. We got, boldly, boldly proclaim. Yes. <laughs> but no, there's this episode of The Office where Andy is like putting his music on YouTube. You remember that one? And then the, one woman it keeps like, giving comments like you're horrible that's terrible and then andy's just like he just every time a negative thing comes on his video he freaks out he's like that's exactly how it is okay so this identity that crisis that we have and it's in all cultures there's an identity crisis but in ours with this technology it like it, it like pours fire fuel on it no it's christ alone and his righteousness that gives you peace in life and certainly peace with god I mean, and that's why we are called to proclaim the gospel of 
the, the preparation for the gospel, which is one of the hardest messages to preach as a believer. Do you understand you're going to stand before God and he's going to judge you? Like, how popular is that message in our culture? I mean, we're not allowed to judge people for their alternative lifestyles where they're flaunting their sin everywhere. You know what I mean? Like, you call that out, you're in trouble. You know, well, by the way, on top of that, you're going to stand before God and he's going to throw you in hell. Like, that's crazy. Christians are going to be marginalized, marginalized, marginalized more and more and more. Are we ready to proclaim that? But see, here's the thing. We can proclaim that because we're not, listen, we're not trying to produce fundamentalists who stand outside, you know, LGBTQ conferences and hold up signs that say you're all going to burn in hell. That's what we're not what we're trying to do. We're trying to proclaim that message so that we can then tell them the glorious Truth of the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. Like, you know, which churches proclaim, but they don't proclaim the first part. It's like the church has this medicine they're trying to give up, but they don't tell anyone the sickness. You know, and, and that we need to tell people the sickness. Now, checking my time. Oh, five minutes. I'm doing four, I'm going 45. It's 45. It's 40, okay, okay. okay. <laughs> Michael, just tackle me if I go too long. It's fine. Okay, now present now he says so that was past right we are justified past tense now what does he say we have peace with god through the lord jesus christ through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand so that's what he's going to focus on now moving forward into six into seven and even into the first parts of eight he's going to talk about okay what's it look like to be justified but then once you're justified, there's all these issues that have to be thought through again. What is my relationship to the law of God now? If the law of God isn't what justifies me, which by the way, Paul's going to put in there this little thing. If you haven't reacted to the gospel with the following thought, well, wait a minute. If I'm right with God, irrelevant of if my life changes, doesn't that mean I can sin all my, I want and go to heaven? This is like the greatest news I've ever heard. So you're telling me it's not by works. So I guess that I can just go sin it up and I'll still go to heaven once I die. But if you, I think for Paul, if you haven't like had that reaction to the gospel, you've probably never heard the gospel preached straight. It's always got a comma to it. Well, God loves you and forgives you, comma, but you better behave. God loves you and forgives you, but comma, you better not commit this particular certain bugaboo sin that our church says is bad. Okay? And that's not the gospel. The gospel says, if you've repented and believed in Christ, you are justified and right with him full stop. Now, is there a problem of apostasy? Are there people who leave the fellowship and were they really? Yes, of course, there's a problem. So there's all these things that Paul works out here in these Romans 5, 6, and 7, other parts of his letters. But how, what does it mean to live by faith, stand in grace? What's the relationship to the law? What's the relationship to my sin? That's what Pastor Mike is going to preach wonderfully about in the next several weeks. Okay, now. And then, what's the future thing? And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And one of the most amazing passages in all of the Bible is the second part of Romans 8, where he talks about the creation being liberated from its bondage to decay and the glorious freedom of the children of God, that we do look for this glorious hope. That all this pain, all this misery, all this suffering caused by the sin of Adam is going to be put right at the end by God. And then, of course, we have, how do we present this future hope? That, why, why, why do we have this hope? Because Paul can't get over it. Because you, so, it's interesting. I think that um, Romans 5, 6 to 11, it's almost like, 
It's an aside again because he goes, wait a minute, let me back up. Let me go back to the past thing real quick. Why do we have this future hope? Because while you were yet a wicked, unredeemed sinner, Christ died for you. So if he did that while you were an unregenerate, wicked, unredeemed sinner, guess what he's going to do for you now that you're his? So you don't need to doubt it. Okay, like Paul can't get out because Paul's on testimony, right? He was a persecutor, a Christ hater, and he's redeemed. So he can't get over that. And then Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. I'm going to tell you something right now. And this is because I do online debates and, you know, which is some, somewhat good for my health, somewhat bad for my health and my mental health, getting on Facebook with people and debate. But I'm going to tell you, and this is only, I have evidence of this from going to other churches. If you believe and, and research this, I don't have time to, to proclaim it. Mike talked about it a little bit. The federal headship of Christ. If you believe in the doctrine called the federal headship of Christ. I don't think I'm exaggerating. You're probably in 10% of Christianity today. 10%. And what do I mean by that? That when Adam sinned, he brought upon the world, every man, woman, and child, not only the corruption of sin, which I, I'm debating people online that deny that. They're like, no, you're not, even, you're not even born a sinner. You're born like Adam. I'm like, I can't believe these people exist. Full-blown Pelagianism, like just proclaiming it. And then, the, 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 but most pastors, most pastors, so let me, let me take it back. There's two aspects of the federal headship of Adam. Aspect one, you're born corrupted. Aspect two, you're born guilty, okay? Aspect one, I still think most pastors, you push them, they'll be like, well, yeah, of course, you're born a sinner. Like you have a bad nature you got from Adam. But the second part, No. No, you're actually born guilty of Adam's sin before you commit a personal sin. In other words, you are under judgment for something you didn't do. Namely what Adam did. That's not fair. Let me tell you something real quick. If that's your position, then be consistent. If it's not fair that you're punished for someone else's sin, then it's not fair that you're accepted for someone else's righteousness. Does everybody understand that? That's why this is a gospel issue. Because when you now, a lot of pastors will inconsistently still have the gospel correct, even though they deny the imputation of Adam's guilt, which, you know, as Spurgeon said, blessed inconsistency. Okay? But the bottom line is, it's inconsistent because Adam's sin brings you under, and that's Romans 5 12 to 21, if you want to read it and study it. That's Paul's point is that here's what Adam did, and here's what Christ did, and they're equivalent in terms of... Now, there's a contrast. Christ is greater, is Paul's ultimate point in Romans 5, but his compare and contrast is to say, Adam brought condemnation, Christ brings justification. Now, I would just encourage you as I close, this book of Romans repays every moment you study it. So the fact that this book's being preached through and studied in this church is a blessing for you, and just continue to read it. I mean, in seminary, I got to the point where I can read, not to brag, but it's just, this is how much I got into it. I can read Romans 1 through 8 in Greek without even an English translation next to me. And it's not because I can just open any part of the Bible and read in Greek. I'm just not that good at it. But because I went verse by verse through Romans just to study it. And I feel like it's really repaid dividends in my spiritual life. That I have the contents of this book. Like, I could, if you quiz me, what's Romans one about? What's two? What's three? I could give you an overview just from memory because I've studied it, and that's why I want every Christian to be at with the Book of Romans. Like, I know the contents of this book. I know I, I have it mastered. I've, and that's how we should be with our Bible in general. 
You know, this is the, if, if this, in fact, is what it says it is, the very breaking in of the God of creation into the universe historically to reveal himself to us, we should be all over this book. So a lot of times the reason why we're not studying, and I'll put myself in this category, is because my faith is weak. Because if my faith was strong, I would believe what this book says about itself, that this is the creator of the universe who made everything by a word of his mouth speaking to us. Should we not be reading and studying and meditating upon this every day? Let's pray. Lord, God, I thank you for your word today. And Lord, I pray that you would put a fire in us to study your word, to read it, to memorize it, to meditate upon it. So our passion for you, Christ, will grow and that it will, it will push us out in mission and push us out in evangelism and push us to reach out to our coworkers, our friends, our family, to share this news that has lit us on fire as we press into it, study it, meditate upon, read. Lord, help us, give us that desire, that passion. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.